have it on good authority that we're going to sing a few songs that, uh, that we all know very well. They've been around for a long time. So the first one we're going to start tonight with Amazing Grace. Let's stand. We'll sing together.
good to have you all here. It's a little bit different tonight. Clear out just a little. Oh, there it is. Clear out just a little bit early to make sure that uh, we get out of the way for the uh, kids coming in. We've had a great vacation Bible school. We've had great TNT last night, and crowds have been good, and kids have been making decisions. So we're praising the Lord for those things. But uh, we will need to clear out of here just a little bit. Welcome to the college group that's here instead of their class because their class is one of our classes. We put the 5th and 6th grade over there in the recharge class because it's like the smallest group, typically. Last night, I think we had 30 5th and 6th graders, which is like, that's a lot for us. So that was exciting. We're not dis- disappointed. It's just that that packs that little, it's a garage. It used to be a garage. Now it's now it's a Sunday school room. And so it really packs them in uh, tightly. So anyway, just continue to pray for that. Pray for uh, Sue Dennis. She had uh, knee surgery today. Things went well. She... Uh, her MS causes her to not wake up easily, so she was out for three and a half hours in recovery, uh, which is a little long, usually about an hour, but they did get her awake, she's doing okay, and she's back home. Brenda Smith had knee replacement as well, and uh, she is not home. She's gonna, they're going to keep her overnight, not because things didn't go well, just because it's a different kind of surgery. Brenda's had three other surgeries on that knee, so they're working around other metal components that are already in place and so it just was a different kind of surgery but everything went well and they fully expect her to recover as well so i just keep praying for those things uh jeff littleton is in the hospital had another stroke and so if you would just continue to pray for the littletons i know they'd appreciate it he's they're hoping they would go get to go home today uh but i don't know they were doing physical therapy when i was there this afternoon so i don't know what happened yet let's pray for them mel's dad still in the hospital um Yesterday, last night was not good, so we were meeting today with hospice, and today while we were meeting with hospice, he's coming back around. They stood him up, and he sat up in a chair and ate applesauce and was having conversations, so uh, we don't know what we're doing exactly, so he's not having a great night right now, but you know, it's just, he's 93 and struggling, so uh, pray for all of those things, and we'll get prayer requests before we leave, have a word of prayer, but we'll pray together instead of breaking up, because we're going to be uh, just crushed for time when it comes to that, right? But let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we love you. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word together. Pray as we go through Second Peter that we would just learn and grow in your grace. Be drawn to you through the things that are here and we'll thank and praise you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, Brother Dave took us through in revival, took us through First Peter, and I only have three Wednesdays this summer, so I thought, well, because of the interns filling in and just different things going on, so I uh, thought, well, I'm going to... Uh, just go through Second Peter. We'll see what Second Peter has to say to us. So we did that first chapter one last week. So we're in Second Peter chapter two, and we're just kind of walking through the chapter uh, as we come to the end of Second Peter chapter one. It's that holy men of God spake as they removed the Holy Ghost, and that's how the Word of God was given to us. And that's where we come into this uh, in chapter two and verse one. It says, "But now that but referencing because the chapter and verse divisions are not given to us by God, but given to us by man to help us find things. And wouldn't it be awful if you didn't?" have those in your Bible, and your pastor stood up and said, turn to the book of Second Peter, and let's see, uh, I'll keep reading until we get to where we want to be, you follow along, you know, I don't know what you do, how would you find your place? So anyway, uh, so here we are, so that, that, you know, conjunction there is in place to reference back to chapter 1, those holy men of God, it says, but there were false prophets also among the people. Then it makes a statement that I want us to catch, because this is where it's for us, this is, we're now this New Testament church, and uh, we don't have those Old Testament prophets writing the word of God. But here's what it says. 
even as there shall be false teachers among you. So if I were to ask you, what do you think that I think is the most important word in that phrase? Even as there shall be false teachers among you, what do you think is the most important word? Shall. It doesn't say there might be false teachers. God's literally telling us, hey, listen up, church. You've got to pay attention because there are going to be people. They're going to come into our lives with the purpose of trying to pull us away from the things of God. This is an expectation that God puts in place for us. There shall be false teachers even among us. The, you know, the, the idea that, you know, that the devil is the great deceiver, right? That's what the Bible calls him. He is, a, he is the deceiver. And he blinds the eyes, the Bible says. Uh, he um, sends a delusion. He, uh, you know, he, there's just all kinds of ways in which the devil is this great deceiver. He is so deceptive that the Bible at one point says that he could appear as an angel of light. And at one point God says that God will interrupt the devil lest he would um, deceive the very elect. You know, I mean, it's like... Even Christians would be so messed up by his ability to deceive. That's what he does. So uh, the idea is that we've got to beware. In First Peter, we, we heard this phrase, that the devil as a roaring lion is going about seeking whom he may devour. And that's written to, to Christians as well. And so we get to this, this chapter and we have this warning from Peter saying, hey, listen, there, there are going to be false teachers among you. So let me ask. Um, in your long or short history of Christianity, however long you've known Christ, um, what are some of the deceptions that you might have seen the church face? Uh, maybe the, we're obviously more familiar with the church in America, so maybe you could think about the church in America. Maybe it's specifically you know, something that you've had to deal with. But what would be one of those? Give me an example of one of those deceptions you think that's come our way. Okay, the Branch Davidians. Uh, the uh, that that thing in Texas where you'd have to go back if you don't remember when Clinton was president, but you know, so the, we burned the compound down there. But they were there because they believed they uh, they legitimately believed what uh, David Koresh was was it David Koresh? Am I saying that right? David Koresh was teaching them, right? Uh, he had he had con he had confused these people, and they were there, and literally they they allowed their children and their families to be destroyed. Uh, because of their beliefs. It, it's um, amazing. That's one, uh, which was a pretty major one. Um, this morning it came up, and it, this is, again, history that most of you young people don't know, uh, but uh, the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, comes from something, and all of us who are you know, in our 50s and older, uh, we recognize it right away. And the rest of you recognize it. It's a phrase you've used for your whole life, drinking the Kool-Aid, but you may or may not know what it comes from, right? So Jim Jones was a Baptist preacher in Indianapolis. I don't know if you're aware of that. And he then got crossways with whatever, and he convinced this group of people to move to South America, where then uh, he convinced them, he poisoned, he put cyanide in, in, in Kool-Aid, and convinced them all to commit mass suicide by drinking the Kool-Aid. And that's where the phrase comes from. You know, it's that concept of being deceived, we drink the Kool-Aid. And uh, it's an amazing thing the devil will come in and, and uh, deceive. What's another thing the church has had to face that you might think through? Any other deceptions that are out there? Okay, the prosperity gospel. That's a really big one right now. 
This is a tough one because this is what's so difficult about false teaching is that it's often, if not always, has that kernel of truth, right? Does God want to bless his children? Yes, he does. Is it wrong for us to want God to bless us? No, it's not. But the prosperity gospel is the idea that, you know, that if you're not being blessed, if things aren't going great, then you're not right with God. That's for one. That's part of that concept of prosperity gospel. And it puts as its core not our sin and Christ's redemption for our sin and, you know, as the core and the basis of our, of our religion, but instead it puts as its core that we want to get stuff from God. And so it becomes this, this whole concept of prosperity gospel. If you believe hard enough, usually it's if you believe hard enough and send me a hundred bucks, then God will bless you with whatever it is you're praying. I'll add you to the prayer list and God will bless our joined prayers. And it became a way for, for uh, television preachers to enrich themselves, really. There's a prosperity in there, right? But it wasn't always for the people who were following it. Good works would be considered one, right? I mean, here's the point. The devil has lost, this is written to Christians. The devil has already lost the battle for our souls. Our souls now belong to Christ, right? We're his. We're sealed into the day of salvation, the day of redemption, we're, we're his. We're kept by him. But, so his battle now is not for our soul, but his battle is for our effectiveness as a Christian, right? If he can keep us then from influencing others, if he can deceive us and get us off track and cause us to go a different way, then our the power of the gospel in our lives becomes lessened by the deception that we're following. So uh, that's where those good works come in. We know better, right? We all get saved by grace through faith. And yet, many, many Christians that you know will excuse someone else, well, you know, I know that they don't really believe on Jesus, but they're a good person, and I think God would let them go to heaven. And we start, we, we bought in, we've drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, right? And it's not a matter of God letting them go to heaven, right? God doesn't send anyone to heaven. We're condemned already, John chapter 3 says. He, he sent Jesus to bring us out of condemnation. And we're already condemned. God has to do nothing to condemn us. We're already condemned. Uh, what he does is to save us. And it's his desire that we would come to know Christ. So, um, but that's a deception. Give me one more. We'll be done. The, wow. Crusades and what? Calvinism. So you get, so two things. So the Crusades. The Crusades is an interesting one. So right, the Crusades is like, we're going to win the world by force. Now, that, that's the basics of the Crusades, right? We're going we're gonna to convert the world by force. It's like, trust Jesus or die. Now, you can, you might get a lot of, I trust Jesus is out of that, but there's probably not a lot of genuine conversions out of that, right? That concept, trust Jesus or die. And so, wow, that, um, that's a big challenge for us, right? So uh, we, we would see it, but you'd be amazed. I mean, think about this. The church at the time, a chunk of the church was leading the crusade. That's the point. There was deception involved. And so... Uh, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous thing for us. Then we get Calvinism. Now we're getting into the doctrines and the, 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 uh, the, the oh, what am I trying to say, the falseness or the blindness of doctrine where people just get blinded by what we have been taught and what we believe and we hold on to things 
And the Bible calls this tradition, right? And it becomes dangerous. We're holding on to things because this is what we've always been taught. And we quit allowing ourselves to be, be taught by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God and to grow in His grace. And so you get into these things of Calvinism where, you know, and the Bible is, there's some, there's some verses, I'm going to tell you honestly, there's some verses that are tough on Calvinism, tough for you to answer to, right? But I, you, if you've ever heard my approach on this, it's real simple. Uh, my approach is that we should consider the multitude of verses first, and then we take the verses that are hard to understand, and we explain them with the multitude of verses. Often what we try to do is take a molehill and fit the mountain into the molehill, and that doesn't make sense. So are there verses in the Bible that make it that sound Calvinistic, that God is literally saying, I want you and I don't want you? There are. But you've got to balance those with the verses, the multitude of verses. You've got to explain those on the idea of the multitude of verses where it says, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And not for our sins only, but for the sins also of the whole world Jesus died. And so you, you got and there's a multitude of these verses, so I don't, I don't try to fit the multitude into the small pile. Instead, I say, okay, I'm going to understand this by the multitude. Now, we've got to, this is our challenge, right? We've got to figure these out. And uh, hopefully, we're, we figure it out because these false teachers are coming in. We want to keep going because this is the theme, really, for this whole section of Scripture. And I'm going to be here forever if I don't hurry. And this is what the false teachers do. Who shall privily, privately, secretly, shall bring in damnable heresies, things that will cre create you know, havoc for us, heresies or false teachings, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now, this is important to say this. It says, even denying the Lord that bought them. And the implication there is that we're talking about Christian people. The Christian people who are leading the deception. They, they've drunk the Kool-Aid, and now they're leading it, and it becomes uh, dangerous. Look at verse 2. It says, and many shall follow their pernicious. Anybody know what pernicious means? What pernicious means? Many shall follow their pernicious ways. I was telling them this morning, I, when I see the word pernicious, it makes me think of um, the Grinch. It sounds like some, some word that... Uh, that you know you would find in in the poem of the story of the Grinch, right? You're a mean one, Mister. Pernicious just seems like it should fit in there someplace. Uh, but what does pernicious mean? Sinful, destructive is really the great word right here. It's destructive. Many shall follow their destructive way. Have you ever have you ever watched somebody making life choices that are so obviously destructive? You think, how in the world can they do this? What do they do? I mean, I mean, every time somebody takes a needle and puts it in their arm, you think, why would you ever do that? First of all, I really do wonder, why would you ever do that? I don't know. You know I've never been drawn to that, and needles don't bother me in the least. When they take my blood, I watch the needle go in, I watch the blood come out. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by it. They don't bother me, but I've never had this desire to go just poke myself for some kind of feeling. I, I don't know. I've just never had it, but... You know, that's an obviously destructive, you think, it's obviously destructive, but there's a deception there, right? That, that it's not going to impact me as harshly as it does other people or whatever, and, and that the, the good feelings override it. These are those destructive ways, people making bad decisions. Many, it says, shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And this is a, that's a big statement, too. The way of truth, what's the way of truth? 
the gospel, that'd be the way of truth, the scripture, when God's people, so we're, well, we are in verse 2, right? We haven't gotten past it very much here. But Peter says, false teachers are going to come in, and when God's people allow themselves to be deceived and start following the wrong direction, the result is that the way of truth, God's truth, becomes evil spoken of. Um, I was reminding them this morning, many of you would never remember this because it's way before your time. But uh, back in the late 70s, Jimmy Carter kind of ushered in a, a phrase in America. Not, it wasn't a new phrase, it's in the Bible, but he ushered it into the American psyche. And you could not get into politics on a national level unless you were willing to say, I am a born-again Christian. Remember that? Jimmy Carter, was, he stood up and declared, I'm born again. And, and he became very popular. And, and from that point forward, Reagan, Bush... Uh, you know, their vice presidents as well, you know, Quayle and those people. I mean, if you were going to, even Clinton, I mean, if you were going to get elected, you had to say, I'm a born, because America was not going to have anybody who did not profess to be a born-again Christian. We have come full spectrum now, full circle, right? It's the opposite direction at this point. Being a Christian is now like a weight around the neck of the politician. The politician who stands up and says, I believe the, I believe the Bible is all of a sudden almost unelectable. And we're just talking about the last 40 years, 30 years. It hasn't been that long ago that at one point the, the way of truth was not evil spoken. It was so, was so revered in America you had to be a, you had to at least say you were a born-again Christian in order to be elected. Now the way of truth is evil spoken of. Christians are the bad guys in America today. And I'm not whining about it. You know, that's what Dave's whole point was, you know, two weeks ago, was we need to get over it, quit whining about it, and thrive where God has placed us. And that is a really good point for us to catch on to. But it's a reality. Our, the way of truth is now being evil spoken of. It says in verse 3, And through covetousness, they shall they with feigned words. What are feigned words? What's feigned mean? Fake, made-up, pretended words. Through covetousness, the people, the deceivers now he's talking about, are, are covetous. They want. They, they're greedy. Through covetousness, they with vain words shall make merchandise of you. They're going to take advantage of us. Um, you, know, so, you know, I want you to stop and think about this. So, America is very entrepreneurial, right? We know how to make a buck. We're pretty good at it. And uh, do you think that do you think that that's ever they've ever had chance to use God and His Word to make a buck? You know what was happening when the born again thing phenomenon came through, and you had to be a Christian. Christian books skyrocketed across America. Versions of the Bible were coming out every other week. Yet another version, another version, another version, another version. I mean, people were just making like. It is the hot item. You know what's not selling right now? <laughs> Stop and think about it, right? You know why you're not seeing so many versions of the Bible appearing? Because now we've, everybody's agreed on one? No. <laughs> That's not it. You know why? Because the money's not there. The merchandise, now the, evil, the, the truth is being evil spoken of. But if, we'll, if we're not careful, they're going to come in. They're going to use us. They're going to, they're with feigned words, make a merchandise of us, whose judgment... 
Now the long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Now we're going to enter into this phase where God's going to say something. He says, listen, don't panic. I've got this under control. And I know sometimes we want to say, God, why would you let that person be in charge? Have you ever thought that to yourself? Why would God allow that person to be elected? Well, by the way, I'll point this out. First of all, there's a verse in the Scripture that basically says this. I'm going to paraphrase it. You get the king you deserve. (laughs) You know, I mean, ouch. It's a tough statement, but sometimes God's like, you know what? If you you want to go that way, I'm going to let you. And you'll just have to suffer the consequences. The proof of that is the very first king of Israel, right? When God said... You know, I didn't plan for you to have a king, but he said to Samuel, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. Let them have a king. But tell them this. Your king is going to make slaves of your daughters, slaves of your sons, take, tax all your property, take all your money. And they said, we want it anyway. Okay, God said, you got it. <laughs> you got it. I mean, he was, he was trying to be honest with them. Sometimes we just get what we deserve. But God's about to say to, to the church here, don't panic because I'm in charge. And so he says, when we think, man... Their judgment is lingering forever, and their damnation is is slumbering. Nothing's happening to these people. When God, why doesn't God move and get them out of the way? Well, take a look at verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So he says, listen, I've got the angels that I've got to deal with, and they're, they're reserved waiting for judgment. That hasn't happened yet. They're reserved waiting for judgment. The angels that fell, the angels that followed Satan. Um, that gets into the argument of are, the, are the, these angels demons? And uh, you, I, you and I probably think, well, of course, that's what they are. But I'm telling you, people look at this verse and think, well, the angels are, are in chains, reserved, and so how could they be demons? But I would point out to you that the devil is one of those angels. And so uh, you need to understand that this, Chains of darkness is not like a literal chain. They're bound in their spiritual darkness. They're, they're bound by their, by their spiritual blindness. So there's chains of darkness, but they're reserved in a judgment. But he goes on. He says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. We, we know this, right? That when God put Noah on the ark, how many years had the world been in wickedness? At least 120 while he was preaching, right? At least 120. And, and God had already said the world was in darkness when he, when he gave the command to Noah in Genesis 6. So the, my point is that God is a gracious and merciful God. He's slow to anger. That's what the Bible says. And... When we see God being gracious and merciful and slow to anger, and it's, it's the enemy that's affecting us, sometimes we're like, God, why don't you punish these people? Right? We're tempted to be saying that. But God is but God's saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it in my time, but I am going to do it. Don't panic. So he says, I've got the angels taken care of. I took care of Noah and, and the old world. You don't have to worry about that. Look at verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should after live ungodly. How long was Sodom and Gomorrah living in wickedness? And think about this for a moment. God has always been a gracious and long-suffering God. His desire 
you know, there is a verse that says, he hath no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. His, God's desire is not to, to mete out punishment. God's desire is that all should come to repentance, right? That's God's desire. God's desire is to welcome everyone into his kingdom. He's not willing any should perish. That's God's desire. And so, you, you know, we forget that. And when we, when we look at the wicked who seem to be messing up our lives, when we look at people who are deceiving our, our friends and our families, and we're tempted to say, God, why don't you intervene? Why don't you interrupt? Why don't you... Remember in the in when John and uh, James and John were with Jesus and they're in uh, Samaria was it and uh, they rejected they they rejected Jesus' word and they said Lord should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them you remember what Jesus said to them you don't know what spirit I'm of here <laughs> you misunderstand why we're here <laughs> we're not here to destroy these people we're here to save them right and so. That's always been God's heart. He's not, he's not quick uh, with the, on the trigger. And sometimes God's people get a little bit frustrated. Like, God, why don't you interrupt? Why don't you do something? Why don't you stop this? But God is, but he says, I've got, I've got it taken care of. I, I know when I ought to step in. And I know how I ought to step in. So he reminds them. You know, I didn't spare the angels. I didn't spare the old world. I didn't spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he gets to verse 7, and there's a, a great little study here about Lot. And, uh, and by the way, Lot and eternal security. And delivered just Lot. And just doesn't mean like only Lot. It means just like the justified, the righteous. And we can prove that as it goes on. He was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Now, remember, Lot got himself in this situation, right? The Bible's very clear. Uh, Abraham said... Now, I've often wondered, what if, what if Lot would have taken the other way? Abraham then would have been facing the plains and Sodom and Gomorrah. But the distinction here is what's shown in the heart. Because I personally believe Abraham could have endured what he was good in and maybe won them over or at least been used by God to bring on their destruction minus you know, God's people. But Lot chose, and so the Bible says Lot looked out there and he saw all the, the beauty that was around it, and he chose the well-watered plains, and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. The next thing, he's at the gate of Sodom, and the next thing, he's inside the gate of Sodom, and the next thing, he's like, come on, we've got to get out of here, and nobody will listen, right, because he's in trouble. And uh, so, but it keeps on, look at what it says about Lot, it's pretty incredible. Because Lot, who messed up his life with bad choices, uh, yet God is holding on to him. Verse 8 says, Listen, says this, For that righteous man, still talking about Lot, the righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. That's, that's what happens whenever we make the bad choices. Lot was deceived. This is a great example of you know, Lot following, drinking the Kool-Aid and thinking... I can go here and it won't affect my family. I can do this and it won't affect me. I can, I can watch these shows and listen to this stuff on the internet and I can, uh, and, and it's not going to affect me any. And, and no, his righteous soul is being vexed. But look at verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. God's like, I've got it under control. 
You don't have to worry about Washington, D.C. I've got them under control. My grace and my mercy is giving them a chance. That's what he does. But I know when it's time how to deliver the righteous, and I know how to punish. And you don't have to worry about it. And so, uh, you know, we're going to have false teachers. It's going to be an impact for us, but we can take a look at this. Let's go on verse 10. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise, and listen to what it says, and despise government. Now, what does that mean to despise government? Anybody have an idea? If you weren't here this morning. What does it mean to despise government? Because it's honestly, quite honestly, it's not talking about... Go ahead, Michael. There you go. It's really not talking about Washington, D.C., all right? I want you to understand that. It's not. It's talking about just authority. It's talking about authority. They despise authority. You know somebody who just does not want to be told what to do? Well, that describes kind of every 16-year-old boy, I know. But getting past that, once they get past all the hormones... They hopefully get past that. But people who just are living their lives despising authority. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And that's a dangerous place. He says, listen, here's what's happening. These people are going to lead you to this point. Chiefly, them that walk after the flesh, the lust of uncleanness. They despise government. They're presumptuous, are they? <laughs> what's presumptuous mean? We have all these words that just we don't use nowadays. What's presumptuous mean? David said in uh, Psalm 14, in Psalm 14, David said, I think it's Psalm 14, David said, cleanse me from presumptuous sins. What's presumptuous mean? Okay. Uh, in, by definition, here's the definition, it means daring. It's like you have the audacity to face God. And that's what, that's what the presumptuous sin concept is. I don't really care what God thinks. I'm going to do it anyway. It's presumptuous. It's like, I, I'm going to I'm going to spit in the face of God, and I don't care. And presumptuous are they? Self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evils of dignitaries. Now, by the way, these dignitaries would be the ones that God has given authority to, right? So earlier they despise authority, and now they're not afraid to speak evil of those to whom God has given authority. And in fact, it goes on to say, listen to what it says in the next verse. Whereas the angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Even the angels don't speak against the people who God's given authority to. Think about that. I mean, the angels are like, uh, okay, I'm not going to open my mouth against Dad. I'm not going to open my mouth against, you know, the government official. Remember Romans chapter 13? God says, those government officials are our ministers. They're God's ministers for our good. And uh, so it, that doesn't mean they're doing good. It means that God's going to use them for our good. And it doesn't, they don't have to do good for God to use them for our good. Uh, God can use all kinds of things for our good. Cancer. Uh, God can use, you know, I mean, in my personal life, you, you've heard me say this before, but, you know, God took a divorce, an ugly divorce from my mom and dad, that they were and used that to bring me to church, and then I got saved. I mean, I got saved because God took something ugly and sinful and horrible, but you know, He used it. And so, uh, the angels were like, I'm not going to speak against these people who have authority, even the angels are like that. And uh, we get there and say, I'm going to speak against those that God has given authority to. Verse 12 says, But, as, but these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not. 
and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. God said, listen, here's what's going to happen. You know why you don't have to worry about, about politicians? Because politicians who rejected the things of Christ and are walking in this wicked, evil way, God says, I've got to, they're, they're made to be destroyed. They're, they're going that way. And uh, the things that speak evil of things that they don't understand, and they're going to utterly perish in their own corruption. We don't have to be involved in their corruption. They're, gonna, they're, they're heading that way. And they shall receive the reward of their unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots are they, and, the, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings, while they feast with you. I mean, this is the concept of deception, right? Hey, let's all do this. We're all in this together. And, and yet they're, they're setting things up to be evil. So here's, what, here's the, the warning of Second Peter. Church, I've got you covered. Don't be deceived. Don't walk away from the things of God and destroy the truth that's out there because someone is leading you astray. You know, we just had a, a group that came in you know, from uh, Utah, that went to Utah. And that's what they came back in their, in their testimonies. They're like, we, we didn't realize how deceiving that religion is that's out there. It's, it's a religion of deception. And we heard that again and again Sunday night as they were sharing their testimonies. Uh, and it is, it's, it's heartbreaking to see what people will do when they're deceived. Just how far they'll go. And how, how difficult. And then the church has... These false teachers that come in, and if we're not careful, once we've bought into the truth and we know the truth, we're deceived and we're turned away from the truth. And it's going to cause our, our faith to be evil spoken of. It's going to take away the power of the gospel. Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following after the way of Balaam, Son of Bosor, I'm sorry, who loved the wages. Remember who Balaam was? In fact, in the next verse it tells you, uh, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the pastors. Remember who Balaam is? He's that guy whose donkey starts speaking to him. And he's. Do you remember what his sin was? Do you remember? The king said, "I want, I want you to curse Israel." And he said, "Well, I'll pray about it and see what God says." God says, "No, you don't." He says, nope, I can't do it. king says, I'll give you money. I'll pray about it. God says, no, you don't. Nope, can't do it. I mean, they go back and forth in this conversation. I'll give you more money. I'll give you riches. I'll give you power. I'll give you whatever. Okay, well, let's go. We'll, we'll go to your land, and, and I'll talk about it. We'll, we'll talk some more about it. So he's, he's not quite there yet, right? And so on the way, God sends an angel to stop him, and his donkey starts speaking to him. And you know, Balaam's beating the donkey, and the donkey says, "Why are you beating me up? I'm just trying to help you here. There's an angel's about to kill you." You know, what I mean, and it, it, I love that conversation Balaam has because he, if my donkey started talking, I think I would care. And he actually wants to kill the donkey. And you'd think he'd say, "This is a money maker right here." That doesn't happen very often. He still doesn't get it. But then he goes on. He keeps saying to the king. God won't let me curse Israel. God won't let me curse Israel. But what happens next? Am I no? Balaam says, I can tell you how we can get God to curse Israel. Let's get Israel to sin against God. Wow. And so he begins the deception of Israel. 
and he's warning, don't go the way of Balaam, right? And Balaam gets his riches, what he wants, but he, of course, he gets the condemnation of God. And so it's like, this is not a good way for us to go. We want to not be deceived. Uh, these are, I love how God describes these people. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest that, uh, whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. They're, just, they're useless. There's, there's nothing to them. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity and they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, through those that were clean escaped from them who lived in error. And so, you know, we just have this, and this now gets critical. I'm going to try to finish this up here. For while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. So here's the deceiver. Let's imagine for a moment I'm the deceiver. I know that's hard for you to imagine, but anyway. I, I, I did teach a class one time, uh, uh, and I said to them, every week I'm going to tell you a lie. Every week I'm going to lie to you. I want you to see if you can catch it. I taught the class for four weeks. One week they caught the lie. One week. That's how easy it is to stand at a pulpit and deceive God's people. We don't always think when we're listening, and we assume well, Pastor John would never tell us anything like that, right? We assume that if it's coming from the pulpit, it must be good. And so let's imagine, I'm the deceiver, and here's what the Bible says. I'm the deceiver promising you liberty, but the truth is, I myself am in bondage to corruption. Do you see what the problem is? This God's just trying to tell us, you know, we promise liberty, but they themselves are the servants of corruption. They're, they're in bondage. For whom a man is overcome this of the same is he brought in bondage. And so they're out there seeking money, seeking whatever there is. And, and so, For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the first. Now that's the verse that really gets tricky. Can you lose your salvation? For if... After they have escaped the corrupt, the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end with them is worse with them than the beginning. Can you lose your salvation? I'm not trying to trick you. The answer is still no, Right? So what we've got to do is understand this verse in light of the mountain, right? This is the molehill. We've got to understand it in light of the mountain because, no, we can't lose our salvation. But the Bible literally declares that when Christians who have escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and then allow ourselves to be deceived and drawn back in, here's what the Bible says, the latter end is worse than the first. It's, it's hard for us. Now, there's two ways to interpret this and understand it. One is, there are those who would say that the phrase, escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of Christ, is knowledge, head knowledge, and that's it. Okay, there would, there would be those. Can I just point this out to you? That word knowledge we talked about last week, what do you think this word is? It's epinosis. It's knowledge through experience. I'm just telling you. That's what it is. Okay, so you can argue, it, and I'm, I'm, there are many, many good people who would say they're not saved people. Okay, I probably wouldn't fall in that category based on that one word. That's just me, I'm telling you. So I've got to figure out how to explain this the other way. And I'm going to tell you this, 
Because this is all talking about our human experience. This is talking about the church right here. And it's talking about what happens within the church and our, and our Christian experience. And where we started out and where we're ending up is going to be really bad. And the, the, what we do to the gospel of Christ and how we hurt our families when we allow ourselves to, to surrender our faith and follow after deception. After we know, are Christians, but we're following after deception. We put ourselves in a situation that is so bad that it hurts us, it hurts our families, it hurts our churches. It, it, it's talking about our human experience. It's not talking about our eternal one here. But our, our human experience is, is bad. And it, it is literally saying, in our human experience, does God deal with his children? Does God punish his children? Remember how God knows how to deal with it? He's been spending this whole chapter telling us, I've got this under control. I know how to deal with it. Does God know how to deal with his children? Whom the Lord loveth, he... Chasteneth and scourgeth every son, right? The whole of the Christian life is to get us out from under, you know, God's judgment. But as his children, we can still encounter his wrath, and it becomes really dangerous for us. It's the one we had last, it was last, last week, First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, Right? He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And it's, so it puts us in a, you know, in our Christian walk, it's like we're in worse shape than we were when we started this whole thing out. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's not a salvation issue, but, you know, it's a, it is a, a, a growing in Christ issue. For it had been better for them to have not known, now here's where it gets really tough, not known the way of righteousness than after they had known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Ooh, wait a minute now. How could that be better? How could that be better? Now this is, I'm, right, we're just reading through the word here. How, help me out here. How can that be better? I thought that uh, this guy's still saved, Pastor John. Okay, so he's going to heaven. Isn't that better? <laughs> That's better. So what do you think? Okay. You know, the Bible says things like this. If you hurt one of my little ones, it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck, cast yourself in the sea, than to stand before... Can you imagine what it's going to be like one day to stand before God? It's going to be wonderful. And God says, these are the people who got saved because of you, John. That's great. And then God says, oh, by the way, John, these are the people who wouldn't darken the doors of a church. Because of you, John. Wow. You see how this is? How awful that's going to be. Now, in the end, we're saved though as by fire. First Corinthians chapter 3, our, our wood, hay, and stubble is burned away. And the, the foundation of Christ remains. But what is it going to be like to say, Lord, this is what I've offered you as an expression of my love. And it's all burned away. Right? It's going to be, those are going to be tough things. And it's, he's really just trying to put it into perspective for us. Like, this is not going to be fun. You won't want this. Uh, but it happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog is returned to his own vomit again, and the sow was washed, that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. And that is Second Peter chapter 2. We need to start clearing out pretty soon. They're going to be in here. Anybody have prayer requests before we close this up? that you wanted to share. I've already shared with you the ones that I know publicly. Anybody else? We're going to pray, and we're going to let you guys... 
this area, ha you can stay, but this area needs to clear out. That's where the kids are going to be, so. Oh, okay. All right. I thought it was 8 o'clock. Okay, 8.15. Well, then we can break up into groups and pray. Then, uh, so we'll do that. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Appreciate it. I thought it was 8 o'clock. I thought we got to get out. Still, by 8.15, make sure that uh, these areas are clear. If you would, please, you can stay, but stay on the sides, and uh, they'll get you taken care of. You can break up then into small groups and pray. <laughs>